Hey everyone, this is Paul Siegel, and you're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs comes to you live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, and you can catch us on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms, or youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about it's been 50 years since Gygax and Perrin's Chainmail Miniatures game was first published. So we thought we ought to take an opportunity that, you know, I, I look at I still look at this every single day, practically for my my D&D gaming and my miniature war gaming. And I guess I, uh, of course I do. And sometimes, um, sometimes I, I overlook the fact that that's not super common anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so we figured we'd take the opportunity to celebrate uh, Chainmail, which is kind of the root of our of our fantasy hobby game, and talk about what parts of it do we still look at today, or what parts should we have abandoned a long time ago, and we might have possibly different opinions about that. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dan, have you ever just sat down and played a straight game of Chainmail? <laughs> That's among the best questions that anybody could possibly ask, Paul. And the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I have actually never, I've never played a straight game of Chainmail. Okay, so I'm interested in the fantasy stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm interested, I'm interested in D&D. I'm interested in wizards and dragons and giants and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chainmail doesn't handle that in conjunction with mass combat. Hmm. And that's actually a point of confusion that we could get into more later on. But the, um, uh, you know, you've, uh, so obviously Chainmail, which was published eh, either March or April of 1971, um, I see a couple different months exactly, um, has, uh, has, has, has three dominant parts. Number one, it's got the big mass combat, how do you deal with medieval armies mm-hmm. section doesn't have any dragons or wizards or stuff like that. And then you have the man-to-man combat section uh, where you can have individual figures battling with a slightly different rule set. And then right at the back, there's this appendix called the Fantasy Supplement. And that's where um, the wizards and the dragons and the hobbits and the dwarves and the elves are. But that's only at man-to-man scale. So if I want to fight, if I want to have a fight with you know, a single fighter versus a single ogre, I might as well use D&D for that. Mm-hmm. And if I want to have an army combat between a bunch of elves and a bunch of ghouls, uh, Chainmail doesn't handle that, actually. you got to use a different rule set. Um, so I look at it a lot for the DNA of bits and pieces that came into our one-to-one scale D&D game, and I look at it a lot for stuff that went into later... Uh, mass combat games like Swords and Spells or Battle System or even Warhammer. But if I want to run um, armies with fantasy units, Chainmail actually doesn't handle that. Um, so I wind up, you know, looking at it as a source, but using some other rule set for that. Now, I know at, uh, if, at GaryCon these days, they somebody usually runs a big Chainmail game, right? Like, I think that's a, a thing that I would expect to see at GaryCon. So are they just playing, do you think they're just playing, like, straight up uh, medieval warfare? 
I think, okay, so, and I think that the big, if I recall correctly, the big chain mail table is run by Paul Stormberg, I think. Okay. On an annual basis, if I'm not if I'm not incorrect by that, and 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 Paul does you know wonderful historical work, and he recently made a big video about the history of chainmail. It's on YouTube that I would oh, recommend to people if you don't know what it is. Um, if you do know what it is, then you probably already know what's in there. Um, and uh, my understanding is that Paul um, <clears throat> disagrees actually with the observation that I just made. There, there's a lot of people that kind of hand wave the whole scale issue. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people say, I just don't care. I don't care what the what the reputed scale is. I'm going to throw ogres and wizards and heroes into my chainmail game. Um, and I think uh, Paul uh, plays kind of fast and loose on that issue. So I think he actually, um, and, and there, he, he, he actually does throw heroes and wizards and priests and ogres into those games. Okay. Um, and kind of overlooks the weird scaling issues that you get as a result. Interesting. That's a. Re- I did not I, man to come right out of I, the box and just slam Mr. Stormberg. That was not I, the intent. I feel like I feel like uh, I feel like we should get him on the show, and we should have a little uh, debate here. <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. And I've I've had you know part of the things on the scaling issue that people do get confused is uh, is that you know is that uh, chainmail is mostly mass scale, and then the fantasy stuff is all at one to one scale. Gygax was very, very consistent on that issue over the years. And there's a lot of things that Gygax was inconsistent about. He was very consistent about the fantasy scale there was one-to-one. And he said that in original D&D, and he said it in Swords and Spells, and he said it in an interview in 2005. Um, And um, uh, I I do know that some people actually point to Gary having been at one of those Gen Con chainmail games uh, and their main piece of evidence for the opposite is that he didn't dispute that the scale was at mass scale when someone else ran it. <laughs> and and I've, I've seen people hang their hat on that argument, and for me, that's fairly weak evidence. Uh, Gary was a charismatic guy, right? We know yeah, yeah. that he liked to walk into a room and brighten it and make people feel good about themselves, and I really feel like Gary's charisma was much higher than for him to walk up on a table and shit all over somebody's uh, uh, chainmail miniatures <laughs> game and say you're doing it all wrong. This sucks. Get out of here, kids. Yeah, I, I think yeah. we all know that Gary wouldn't do that. He uh, he saved that for his writing. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I didn't know. You know, it's interesting that you've got. That's interesting that um, you know that that is one of the main the scaling issues. One of the main things that I think about with chainmail, and so I think about that very very carefully. And there's a lot of other people like that like to wave their hands and say, you know, we just didn't care about it and we had fun with it, so who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you do try to interface a D&D game with it, there's a big difference. And, of course, the main difference <clears throat> is that if Chainmail is at 1 to 20 scale, then it makes the difference of does your, does your fourth-level hero, are they attacking four men per round or are they attacking... 80 men per round <laughs> and that, right and that's a huge difference uh if you're playing D, you know classic D and you can get maybe four attacks per round and then you just declare oh now i'm fighting an army so i can attack 80 men per round and uh guy gags was very consistent he said absolutely not it's four men the end it's four men it's not 80 men right. but there are other people that say you know what i love being able to attack 80 men i love being <laughs> able to get a t- 80 attacks per round 
please don't take that away from me. That's how we played it, and that's how I want it. And we can sort of understand if that's if that was a, a feature that they got out of it, why they'd want to hang on to that. Sure. <laughs> Fascinating. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is, right, that we, we generally talk about chain mail. We're always looking at it sort of through this lens of... Um, you know, up through D and D, right? Clearly, D and D was built on yeah. top of chainmail, um, but but surely there was a period of time where chainmail was just chainmail, right? Chainmail was just its own its own thing. D and D didn't exist yet. <coughs> I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was it was it highly popular? Do you know? Was it like was it better than other war games out at the time? Well, that's interesting. I think that the germ, the really the thing that took off was the fantasy supplement. The fantasy supplement. And, um, you know, so, and of course they had, uh, of course the Chainmail publication, um, some of those rules were in some prior newsletters that uh, Jeff Perrin in particular was working on. Mm -hmm. So the, the germ of the mass combat rules was in the Castle and Crusades newsletter to my understanding around 1970, 1971. And uh, the Domesday Book Newsletter, uh, issue number five, I guess some, had some pieces. Um, but the, the, the new thing in the published product was that fantasy supplement section. Right. Um, and I think in later years, Gary would say that was the tail that wound up wagging the dog. Right. That's really what got all the attention. Right. And to my understanding, there was, there was some pushback in the community. There were some people that really did not, were really offended at getting ridiculous crap like hobbits and sprites and goblins and dwarves into your very serious napoleonic right. medieval simulation game right. and you know what the funny thing is i gotta i gotta kind of sympathize because honestly <clears throat> i'm i'm of a mindset that i look at some stuff in dnd today and it could be it could be tieflings or cat people or you know, all kinds of uh, anthropomorphic animal you know, races and stuff like that. And I'm like, that, that's a little too far. You got to <laughs> rein it in, kids. Rein it in. Yeah, and yeah. in that respect, I can actually sympathize with people you know, actually disputing having this fantasy supplement in there. But to my understanding, that was largely the first supplement that allowed you to game fantasy dragons and wizards and ogres and stuff like that. And that caught people's imagination yep. and rightfully yep. so yep yep interesting you know ash has a question there uh about three back i think of is there any evidence that gygax disputed how anyone ran any games that he has author credit for is there i think the answer is yes right <laughs> i i've never heard about it in person i've never heard about it when walking up to someone's face but I think that there, I think in the the early zine days, there is quite a lot of him being very critical, particularly yeah. of uh, uh, fanzines published outside TSR. So there was one, what Alarms and Excursions, published by Lee Gold in California, I think, okay. where he was he was pretty highly critical about some of the stuff that was put in there. I think. Hmm. Um, was that just him? So yeah, in writing, but copyrights or defending ideas, or is that? Uh... I think that was part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was part of it. Um, that was the kind of the era where all that stuff was was sort of getting worked out for the first time. And I think there was a an element of control that he wasn't fond of. There was an element of going too far mm -hmm. that he wasn't fond of. And then it was sort of wrapped up in, 
copyright trademark issues. Now, on the other end of it, I think it was a very famous quote in one of those alarms and excursions where somebody said, Dungeons and Dragons is too important to be left to Gary Gygax alone. <laughs> that's great. And yeah, I, that's, a, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty strong argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, yeah, so, okay. So, you know, I guess just, just to like... You know, I'm sure everyone who's watching this show knows, right, that, like, Chainmail's war game had Fantasy Supplement. D&D, original D&D, references it extensively, right? Like, there's no rules in the Little Brown books for for a lot of the stuff. It just says see, see yeah. Chainmail. Um, and then we lose that link, what, like, immediately, I think, right? Uh, what's the next, you know, first edition AD&D or Holmes Basic? They're, they're immediately just not referencing Chainmail, I think, right? Pretty close. I think probably, I think Holmes does in one or two places, actually. Okay. I think, so So it might be just one single place, name, and I'll tell you where it is. The, the um, in, in Chainmail and the Supplement, right, mm -hmm. um, they borrow a lot of mechanics from the mass combat section. Even though it's a different scale, they say just go ahead and use those rules. For example, uh, Giants Throwing Boulders mm -hmm. uh, says just go use the catapult rules. That's it. So you can, you can save a lot of text because there's all of three, literally three words yeah. To describe giants throwing bullets, namely as light as heavy catapults, I think. Gotcha. And I think Holmes actually still copy pasted that and said, "Here's how giants can throw boulders," and this comes out of chainmail. Okay. But I think that might be about it, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Other than that, totally agree. I don't think um, I'm pretty sure first edition doesn't reference chainmail at all. Uh, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so you're right; it goes away pretty fast. Yeah, it goes away, and then and then fascinatingly, we see product after product where we try to reintroduce mass combat into D and D. Yeah, right. Even though it was yeah. birthed from mass combat, which is fascinating. That's a great point. That's a great <laughs> point. Yeah, and again, the thing that was missing, the thing that was missing in Chainmail was specifically interfacing fantasy stuff with your mass combat, and so in. Um, uh, let me grab it here. So, still in the the original D and D era, the very last supplement actually was the Swords and Spells supplement. Yep. Um, which actually is right, right here um, is allowing you to use fantasy um, uh, units uh, in, in, a, in an army situation. That was why this got that. What you just said, Paul. That's why this got published. It's entirely the modus operandi yeah. of this little book here. Um, and and I, uh, there's an advertisement in Dragon Magazine number five where it specifically says, uh, now you can you can use both heroes and wizards with armies at the same time, exclamation mark. That's actually yeah. what the ad says. Yeah. Uh, and the very the very first paragraph, of the introduction hammers that again. And that's uh, and you're totally right. Uh, so the, 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 the need to interface fantasy stuff with mass combat is really what spawns swords and spells and battle system and a bunch of stuff that came out. And so, so with swords and spells, right? Cause that's the most fascinating thing to me about swords and spells is it's still part of that line of original expansions to OD and D, which is in turn referencing chainmail. So why do we need it? Is it just trying to solve that scale problem? It's totally just trying to solve that scale problem. Interesting. I would say, yeah, the movement is pretty darn similar. Mm -hmm. The formation rules are pretty much just copied out of a chainmail. The terrain rules are pretty much just copied out of chainmail. Um, it has a totally different mechanic for uh, determining attacks and damage, and that mechanic is terrible. Um, 
So oh dear. it's among the worst. It's and um, when we had Jonathan Tweed on a, a couple of weeks back, um, he he nodded he nodded to that when I said the same thing. Yeah, that it's yeah. among the most baffling uh, <laughs> combat mechanics ever ever written down. So oh, clearly geez. that wasn't the motivation. Right, right. The motivation was entirely just we got to be able to work your heroes into in army situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah, which is really interesting, I think, for us in particular, Dan. It's an, an itch that you and I have tried to scratch many times. Um, and uh, obviously, you end up writing a whole rule set yourself to to handle it. Um, yes. And I've, and I've, <laughs> I've incorporated that into um, into my campaigns in the past and had you show up as guest, guest opponent, if you recall, back in the day. Um, so we know that it works pretty well. That, and that, and I may t- let me tell you, I mean, my favorite thing in the world is to play adversary in a, in a mass miniature <laughs> army situation. I mean, sure, just yeah. give me everything that I've ever wanted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. Now, interestingly, so if, if you're watching uh, this later in the YouTube archive, I hope that you'll take a look at the live chat because we currently basically have the debate playing out <laughs> in the live chat right now between exactly how how that interfaces. And I'll I'll just throw out another complication on the scaling issue. Is the problem is even though the fantasy uh, supplement technically works at one to one, one to one scale, again they just borrow the mechanics from the mass combat scales to do your attacks. So you can totally see why there's a lot of confusion between now we're at one-to-one scale, but go ahead and use the mass combat attack matrix uh, for most of the stuff, but then go to this other matrix for other stuff, and it's 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 uh, possibly hard to interpret. Hmm. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Do we have any firsthand records of actual games being run back in the day which incorporated mass combat through one of these systems? Is this a thing that well, Gygax you know, featured in his own games? That's a, that's a great question. And, yeah. you know, it's the, 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 the opportunity is obviously built very much into original D&D and, and still through first edition. The opportunity to get a high-level character, build a castle, found a barony, mm-hmm. hire an army, yeah. fight, other, you know, fight other baronies, that's kind of the whole end game of, of the whole project. Right, right. Um, and you know, sometimes I personally feel like that they didn't it didn't quite pay off on that actually. Hmm. I haven't heard a lot of case studies of that back in the day. And I've seen a I've seen a quote from Guy Gax that said, Nah, my players weren't really interested in that. Right. Right. We, that's, I mean, that stopped happening. You know, uh, the the anecdote I'm always reminded of is the um the first Brownstein game. Uh uh, run by um, I'm gonna say his last name wrong now because he corrected me on it last time. David <laughs> Wesley, Wesley. I think that's that. My understanding is that's correct. Okay. Dave, feel free to correct us again. <laughs> As we continue to mangle your name yourself <laughs> out. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So so the anecdote goes right that 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 the game was it was going to be a war game right and he had all the miniatures all set up and ready to go. Uh, and I, I've heard this from Dave himself, so I'm, I'm fairly certain this is a true story. <laughs> and uh, and uh, oh, we're going to do this little role play thing up front to set the stage where you get to play these characters who are who are important to the setup of the of the big fight that's going to happen. And the big fight never happened, and all the miniatures just stayed on the shelf because everybody was just so digging on that. Um, and so I could see that. I could see. 
I could imagine, I, this is pure conjecture, but I could imagine a lot of effort being written, uh, being put into writing these rules, like, like um, was it Spells and Swords or Battle? Swords and Spells, yeah. Swords and Spells, thank you. Um, you know, to try and try and set up the situation where you could adjudicate this stuff, and then the player's just, like, sidestepping it, just being like, nah, we're going to do this other thing. I want to, <laughs> nah. That's fine. Those armies can fight. We're going to go over here. <laughs> it's really legitimate. It's really, yeah. le you know, it's a really legitimate point. And I mean, clearly that is something, I mean, we can point to some stuff that's been consistent in D&D &D all the way through fifth edition. That is clearly part of the game that has become vestigial and not really a core part of the promise of like a particular class or anything like that. And fifth edition might have, you know, castles or something like that, but it's not really a promise that that's what you're going to be doing at high yeah. level, yeah. Um, and you know maybe that was maybe that was a maybe that was an oversight at the time of how strong you know how addictive the you're playing one character idea yeah. would be. Um, they were still thinking about wargaming. They were still doing that a lot. You yeah. you still had a charisma table that said you can have up to twelve followers, and. Um, you know, having the game shift, right? Having the game shift from I'm running one person to I'm adjudicating a bureaucracy. Yeah. Not everybody's going to want to make that shift. Maybe very few people do. It's, it's, yeah, I'm reminded very much of a sort of uh, piece of advice I heard a lot uh, in my video game uh, work in the past, uh, specifically on like online games that have a long lifespan. Uh, you get to that part of video game development that we call live ops, which is the game is out and it's running, and then you're continuing to add features or you're continuing to develop the game or or just fix bugs or whatever, but while it's live and players are playing it. And it's online, so it's shifting and changing and whatnot. So anyway, one of the one of the pieces of advice I would hear senior designers spout to, to junior designers often is it doesn't matter how you designed it, it matters how the players are playing it. Right? Sort of once it's out there in front of players they're going to find the fun. It might not be the fun you thought existed. And it doesn't matter. They're, they're right. You know, they're the players. They're right. It's really interesting because, you know, I, I, think, I think I was probably thinking about that issue maybe yesterday, Paul. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is, um, what if... Okay, so again, like my, you know, my, my much shorter video game experience was at a place like uh, Papyrus Racing... Um, where the intent was a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. The intent was mm -hmm. to simulate some particular thing in the real world. And I, in that particular case, I might come back around and say, in, in a case where you're trying to simulate a historical thing, um, you might actually want to edit it if the gameplay has, has, has <clears throat> tangented it off in a totally unrealistic direction. Mm -hmm. Then I feel it might be in that case it might be legitimate to tweak the game to bring it back towards the simulation, um, and I think that that's what we would have probably done with the racing game. Um, I bet that's probably what like a flight simulator game might do possibly, um, and I th so that's that's an interesting that I I debate myself of do do I want to if I want to simulate a particular type of play is it legitimate for the designer to rein it back in. Do you think that would be legitimate in that case, Paul, or not even there? I would say it depends on your uh, monetization plan. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. So okay. I, you may be thinking back okay. in the day of like Goldmasters and 
press to disk and any any changes you make after the fact aren't bringing in dollars but when dollars are on the line which is the which is the case these days in video games right so many video games are free to download and then you're paying a recurring fee or you're or you're buying things in the game or whatever you have some other monetization scheme um point being uh when dollars are on the line it becomes very easy to argue i don't care (laughs) what the intent was this is making money interesting yeah well there you have so i mean that's interesting (laughs) so there you have this the the classic wrestling match between the business consideration of gaming and the art consideration of gaming yep um and i'm so i'm so glad you chose to wear the jacket today because that that really nails that just really nails the uh the look of uh of that particular point actually and you know any it's all about the bottom line baby (laughs) no the art is pure keep it pure (laughs) you want a job next week don't you you want to keep the studio doors open screw them if they don't get it screw them they're not good enough for it for my art (laughs) oh goodness oh goodness anyway i'm curious Um, i'm curious how much uh that came into play right like um you know what was the motivation for making swords and spells right like who who was like that's got to be the next thing rather than some other supplement Right, like, I, well, I guess I always assume. One. I always assume that there's some some inner core of necessity that somebody was like, I was playing my game and I could not solve this problem, so I need to write this material. Well, that's a really good point. And probably, I don't, that's a good point. Probably someone. I, so either that really did happen, yeah. or Gygax was just bothered in his head. Um, <laughs> could be. You know, was just bothered and said that he knew there was this problem. He was yeah. aware, you know, he was he was definitely aware of some of these scaling problems. Yep. So he knew it all along and, and maybe at some point someone must have said, I'm going to have my my trolls charge into your elves. And he was like, eh, I'm, making, I'm making it up now and wasn't happy with that would yeah. be my guess. Yeah. It's a really good point. I mean, you know, so that was still within two years, yeah. right? That was still within two years of the original publication of original D&D. So, boy, all of those supplements came out in just like 24 months. Um, That's really fascinating. And maybe it hadn't gotten through his head. I would love to have been a fly on the wall during the development of those supplements. Like, I'm very curious how much those were demand-driven versus just, no, we need a line, right? We need a line. Our new, our fledgling company needs a line. So what do we got that we can print? Print the thing. Well... You're in really, I'm so glad you brought that up, Paul, because yep. you're in such good luck, and so are our viewers, because next week, April 18th, we're going to have the person who was the editor of all of those supplements to OD&D, except the first one, namely Mr. Tim Cask, will be on next wow. week. excellent. And we'll put the question I'm looking at my swords and spells right here, and if I flip forward to the forward, yep, uh, Tim Cask wrote the forward because he was the uh, he was the managing editor at that point. So we can ask. I'm pretty sure we can ask Mr. Cask that question next awesome. week, and I'm looking forward to that. Great, great what? answers to that. Now you know maybe Tim doesn't have any opinions about that. Maybe Tim will just say, "Nah, you know everything was fine." <laughs> you think so, that's? I I, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> we'll have to see what he has to say. <laughs> Now, you know, one thing, so the, um, as, as you say, in original D&D, there's a whole lot of references back to chainmails and look back for yeah, this, look yeah. back for that. 
like anything in our in our foundational tests, there's there's debate about whether that was real or not. And I've seen at least one uh, original D and D player played with Gygax who claims that there was never anything from Chainmail that ever got used in their D and D games, and that the whole that whole thing was business marketing fluff <laughs> that Gygax inserted in a D and D unnecessarily in order to in order to sell more copies of Chainmail. Interesting. Now, there are other people that point out like that can't that can't literally be be possibly the case because there's a whole lot of things that you really do need from Chainmail. For example, um, there's no turn sequence in original D&D. There's no initiative. There's no turn sequence. Mm -hmm. So you either have to make it up or you have to look back to Chainmail. There's no missile ranges. How far does your how far does your longbow shoot? How far does your crossbow shoot? Not printed anywhere in original D&D. You got to go look, look back at Chainmail. Man-to-man -man combat adjustments. If you start looking at fantasy stuff, the fact that heroes get multiple attacks mm -hmm. wasn't written in original D&D. The mm -hmm. fact that dwarves and elves can see in the dark, you got to look back at Chainmail for that. Which units can go invisible, as someone said in the chat earlier, or hide in the woods. Yep. Right? That's all stuff that you, really, you only have back in Chainmail. And now I can see like a really old school player that has digested all of this stuff and it's part of their mental DNA and maybe they don't even know where that comes from anymore, right? I'm just like, that's we were playing D&D, &D, we were playing D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth is, there's a lot of that stuff that really isn't in the books hmm. and has to be recollected. Morale rules, right? Points back to there for that. So um, I think like when I when I first got Chainmail myself, the main thing was figure out what the, what the missile ranges were. Um, because that wasn't anywhere in original D&D. Like, where where yeah. the heck is this? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not it's not surprising that you have folks of the time period buying D&D &D and not being able to make heads or tails of it if that much is missing from the books. Um, although it is pretty explicit about, like, get out your copy of Chainmail. So it's not like... Yeah. Right? It's not like that's hidden, right? Or, or is it? Oh, no. And anytime it, anytime it ref references, of course, it's in all caps. All right? caps, So yep. it's, it's capital C-H-A-I-N-M-L. So it's... <laughs> jumps out of the page at you. Um, and it, it is, yeah, it's, it's, I bet it's like in at least 10, 12 different places in the original D&D yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Very interesting. Um, now, you know, another point of, um, another interesting ambiguity is that you, you crack open your original D&D volume one, and at least out of the box, it says that your combat will be run by chainmail you're gonna, you're gonna look back at the matrices and chainmail to run mm -hmm. your combat mm -hmm. and um the the class chart right is like here's a fighter here's here's your level here's your experience and here's what column to use in the chainmail matrix for their attacks that's actually what it says and then a couple of pages later it says now here's an alternative that you might consider the alternative mm -hmm. combat system you might use what's called a 20-sided die if you have one of those crazy things. And you might look at this different matrix where the attack rolls are gauged against a 20-sided die, if you want to do that. Now, again, the original the original Gygaxian players say that's what they always did. Yep. So I think if they, if they debate that point, I think they're mostly talking about were we running combat with a D20 or were we still using all D6s like Chainmail would? So I think that might be the, the point that maybe Mr. Mornard was focused on. Yeah. I mean, I can see the argument that, like, I'm sure, you know, that I'm sure that Gygax and, and everyone involved in developing D&D &D in those time period had the D20. And so, of course, they were, like, very happy with using it. And I'm sure right. someone at some point went, like, wait a minute, 
a lot of our players aren't going to have the D20, right? So we need to make sure there's a, a method in there for them to play without it. But then I, would, I bet that's I would, a good point. For, for whatever reason, then, I would, I would almost want to flip it then. Like, why would you not start with the D20? It's like, here's the default system for combat, and, oh, you don't have a D20? Go use, you could go use Chainmail instead. Hmm. In retrospect, that seems like... In retrospect, they should have just yanked out the... They, they should have yanked out the, the, the Chainmail combat matrix reference. That, hmm. according to everybody, that didn't really get used... The, the book says you got to have a 20-sided die on the second page in order okay. to run D&D. Okay. So, you know, why not run with that? Yeah. But, um, hmm. uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, again, I mean, it's, that, that, that highlights the fact that the other interesting thing about Chainmail is it's all D6-based, right? Hmm. Everything in the entire Chainmail system is all D6. And then you made this transition to D&D where you started to use polyhedral dice. So that, that itself might have been one of the largest shifts from... <clears throat> Chainmail, you know, man to man fantasy type stuff to D and D. Um, seems like a good idea. Seems like seems like a solid idea that had legs to use, <laughs> use polyhedral dice. That seemed to work pretty well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> plenty of plenty of companies alive today because of that choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. So I'm told. <laughs> Um, so what else so you so you're continuing to consult your copy of chainmail when running the game like when running ODD you have your chainmail handy well okay now you're the one that mm -hmm. made, gave me a bound copy yes of the the original D, D books in one volume which again is one of the best uh, gifts I ever got um, and and you also made one for mr. Tim cask actually so we can ask whether whether yeah. that was useful for him as well and and you were wise enough in this bound volume to put chainmail in it as the first the first part of the sequence. Ah, ah. now this um, is interesting though. I think if we compare with Tim that his I can't remember if his copy has chainmail in it or not. Cuz his copy certainly has all the supplements and I think your copy does not. Right. And Correct, you put uh, you put yeah. Greyhawk in here and not yeah. the other ones. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those Which choices were made just for just for personal taste and for how big is the book going to be and how fat is it going to be and how many pages do I need to slam into it? Um, trying to remember whether or not Tim's copy has chainmail in it or not. can't remember. I think in the past you told me it doesn't. Yeah, I think maybe it doesn't. I think it might not. Yeah. yeah I think that might have been too much. Can't remember. But for me, I I'll really wanted me. that. Yeah, you really wanted it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really wanted it with for, for you know initiative missile uh, combat man to man modifiers mm -hmm. that uh, uh, fantasy reference table that John Miller just mentioned in the chat a minute or two ago. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of buried gems there about how the fantasy types work and how man to man combat works mm -hmm. that um, you would overlook. And it's one of those things where by you know when when they bifurcated systems in the '80s between basic D and D and advanced D and D, that's where a lot of the differences came from. Is uh, you know, Gygax writing AD&D still had these memories of all the stuff back in Chainmail that he didn't bother to copy into OD&D, whereas the basic line just copied stuff from OD&D. Mm -hmm. And so the places where stuff was in Chainmail but not OD&D, that stuff tended to still be in the advanced line and tended to be absent from the basic line, hmm. such as fighters getting, you know, eighth level fighter getting eight attacks. Mm -hmm. Big difference in those two lines. Uh, dragons being able to see invisible stuff. Same difference, actually. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. 
So I, so it, so it's funny how I've, there's there's a many cases of, of of that I've witnessed of Gygax having this kind of common game understanding in his head all the way from Chainmail through original through first edition, um, and not being super laser sharp about writing down every single one of those rules in each edition, even though mentally he thought it was all the same game. Fascinating. I wonder, like, for the for the modern, the modern uh, old school DM, how important do you think if somebody's sitting down to play, I'm going to run OD&D or I'm going to run OED or I'm going to run Swords and Wizardry or whatever, I'm going to run some some flavor of, of original D&D. Um, how important is them to have access to chainmail and be consulting it like that versus rather that the the other way i would think of doing it is to just pull forward right to look forward and say i'm going to look at ad and d i'm going to look at basic and i'm going to pull stuff from that back into my od and d game i can't believe anybody be as old crass as that are you kidding me <laughs> what <laughs> no i mean <laughs> philistines yeah, philistines yeah, how dare you yeah. um do, obviously do you... That's what most people are going to be doing. Right. That's and the, right. I, inter- right. I understand that I'm an outlier who... So that's, that's my I'm question. The, as, as the the person... Gygax points yeah. to and calls a, a, a huge nerd on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Right? So, so, so I, I understand that I'm doing this a, a little bit more in-depth than a lot of people. And of course, it, you know, people should have their own understanding yeah. and should really not be doing much book lookups while they're running the game. Right? I mean, honestly, that's something I'm doing during design work. Mm. Uh, you know, in prep for a game. No, I don't literally crack chainmail open uh, when I'm actually running OD&D. I don't want to crack any book open while I'm actually running right, the game. Right, 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 right. It's interesting. I don't know. I've never really like. I've never really dived really deep into the chainmail rules, to be honest, because I never sat down and was like, "I'm going to play these as is," because right. there's just there's plenty of other fantasy or medieval war games that I think are probably better. Um, and then in terms of, of like it affecting my D and D game, I'm more likely to do the inverse of what I just said of like, look forward and say like, well, really, and, and this is just maybe just our personal preference here, Dan, because, you know, uh, for a long time I was playing BX and then stealing, reaching back into OD and D where there was stuff that I wanted and you were running OD and D and possibly reaching forward or maybe not. Maybe you were trying to reinterpret from as original source as possible. Um, but I remember there was a period of time that we're, we're both running our own campaigns and talking to each other a lot. And, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. And slowly our games were starting to converge yeah. into this system that is, I don't know what. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, at least pretty similar. There's a lot of, yeah. you know, what, what, we, what you and I call OED is, you know, I write it. But I a lot of the time I do ask you about, like, what would you <laughs> want to do in this situation to try to try to match sensibilities. And of course you have a very s- strong uh, design sense for, for RPGs. Um, and, uh, and look, you know, my, you know, my first gaming was, it was in basic, right? Yeah. So homes basic. And then uh, is what I had. And then I ran for many years. I ran with the, the Moldvay BX system. Right. Um, and it's a great system. And, and anytime I crack open BX, right, I'm always really, impressed over and over again by the really sharp design sensibility that Tom Moldvay had there with just one or two, unfortunately, large missteps, I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, frankly, up until 1984, most of my D&D was was in was in Moldvay BX. Yeah. 
So a lot of my sensibility comes from the same place. And, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and make anything happen at all, I mean, no offense to Tim, but, you know, if, 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 if we could have had Moldvay editing Guy Gax in advanced D&D, that would have been a Cracker Jack product. <laughs> yeah, you think that would have been... That would have been, that would have been amazing. Yeah. If, yeah. you know, assuming Tom was, was, was empowered to actually make changes which would be a, a very right. different alternate world than the one right. we were in. Quite quite possibly um, quite possibly he was able to do with basic what he was able to do because the eye of Sauron was not upon him. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. Uh, let me get back to the question I was trying to drive at, which is specifically this. As the person at the table who then has taken the more academic approach of like really digging into chainmail and trying to incorporate the rules forward. Are there any gems in there? Are there anything in there where you're like, if you're pulling from AD&D or BX, you're missing this? I think a lot, I mean, for me, a lot of it's understanding what the original motivation was, hmm. right? So so if I want to edit something, I, I, I frequently found, I'm like, this is just a mysterious weirdo gonzo rule. What could, what could have possibly been in their heads and if I look at it one edition prior, suddenly that mystery gets cleared up. Um, and so knowing the knowing the original motivation for it has solved a bunch of problems. Let me let me I'll pick out one thing just to be concrete about that. Um, and so okay, just a just a parenthetical. John's asking what are, what is my main gripe with BX? It's 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 uh, races class. <laughs> I, I that 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 but obviously that didn't exist prior to prior to Moldvay's BX. That's actually the one thing that I crack it open. Also, the 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 ability scores that you can't uh, you can't increase reasonably past eighteen uh, is a problem for me because of the um, because of the um, um, because of the bell curve on on bonuses. On modifiers, correct. Yeah, but I would I would say because of the 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 the, the uh, shrinking range. So it's three pips for a plus one. It's two pips for a plus two. You only only get plus three for eighteen. Then if it goes past eighteen, what do you do there? Right. And right. Um, yep. Yep. Frank Menser has an answer to that in his Immortal sets, and it's Looney Tunes. <laughs> it's, it's Looney Tunes. So if uh, if Tom had had made a had a fixed range, you know, like they do. Mm -hmm. in fifth edition right fixed range then you can expand it smoothly to higher numbers and everything works out right, right. um that's basically it that's pretty much basically it just those two things okay kind of so big things, so so, so uh i i thought i thought we were going to talk about turn sequence stuff um <laughs> <laughs> that's always the thing i think that grabs my eye in terms of uh <laughs> you know stuff that looks like it came out of Chainmail or OD and D and migrated all the way into BX is that weird turn sequence. Well, that's a good point, right? And so the fact that the fact that OD and D didn't say anything at all about turn sequence made this kind of hazy gap. Mm -hmm. And so, as we know, the initiative and the turn sequence changed a lot over the years. Changed a lot between BX and first edition, third edition, fifth edition. It's very different. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't they didn't quite nail that in original D and D. And so you're right. The, the war game style sequence. I mean, maybe you want to pull up that page. I yeah, don't know if that's yeah, useful. Yeah, so that's, uh, that was a page nine. If Paul's looking at a whole lot of text. I sent him a bunch of images there that's all text. Is that um, the one? So it's not that. No, it's not that. It's, it's going to be an all text page um, that gonna, has. There it is. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, so here's the uh, the the turn sequence out of Chainmail for Mass Combat. There's no revision to this in any other edition. It's, it's not revised in the man-to-man rules, the fantasy rules. It's, there's nothing in OD&D. And, of course, you can see right off the bat, well, there's two. <laughs> right off the bat, there's, there's, not one, there's not one turn sequence. There's actually two, right? Yep. At the top of the page, there's the, the move-counter-move system. And at the bottom of the page, there's the simultaneous movement system. And the basic difference is the one on the bottom, you've got to write down your orders on paper first. Right. This seems like the sort of thing that, like, probably folks who are in the scene at the time debated hotly. I feel like probably there were two camps about how the right way to run your turn sequence in any war game was. And I feel like this is probably a nod to, like, okay, well, it, it's not that important to this game. Like, use whichever one you you like. That's fine. Well, I'm glad to report that that debate has been finally settled. <laughs> Has it? And if you ask about this on modern war game or OD and D boards, yeah. everyone no, that's it's it's still a huge point of contention. Yeah. It's still yeah. a huge point of contention about written orders or not. Yep. And um, you know, maybe our viewers want to chime in about which one they prefer. Um, but uh, but but I, but the, your point, Paul, of course, was looking at this is that this sequence of steps one two three four five six seven is very similar to the sequence of steps that you see in uh, Tom Mulvey's BX game. Yeah. Not exactly the same. Um, and of course, the main difference is that in chainmail rules, every phase happens for both players. So player A and B does step one. Player A and B does step two. Right. Um, um, whereas in uh, Mulvey's BX, it's player A does step one and two and three and four and five, and then player B does those. Um, or like a team, I guess I should say team A does those. Yeah, and yeah team I was going to say, yeah, yeah, it's team-based, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. So, um, and is that something you actually, uh, you follow through? Or I think you expressed some no, surprise. No, no, I just, I feel like, it didn't, it was it just last week where we talking about this? Or maybe it was in the in the post-show chat in Discord, but I feel like it came up about, like, who actually uses this? And then there was the, even debate then. Uh, right. amongst uh, amongst right. our patrons about whether or right. not that was a, a a good way to run combat or not, <laughs> and I think we're having the debate happen again. I think I'm seeing the yeah, debate. Yeah. So re- we just restarted it we all just over again. It. Sorry, okay. everyone. I'm gonna Sorry. pull up. Right, pardon me, like I'm gonna pull up my Moldvay here, and I'm yeah. gonna. Okay, so every time this happens, we all, at this point, at some point, we were all we we're all gonna be on the same page. Okay, it says the side that wins the initiative acts first and does one, two, three, four, five. And then C, the side with the next highest initiative, does one, two, three, four, five. Right. Mm-hmm. So each side, each team is supposed to go through the five phases, which is basically the same order you see there in Chainmail. Um, and uh, and it's funny because not even First Edition has that same thing. First Edition has a list of things you might want to do, but it doesn't try to chop them up into phases. So this is a point where... Yeah where Moldvay is actually a little bit more fiddly than even first edition. So I guess yeah, maybe that I would also kind of critique that. Yeah. That's, that's the one that jumps out as me uh, to me when I'm reading, reading Moldvay is like, what is this? What is this strange? How did this get in here? How did they not Good refine point. this one? Uh, yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's, there's a document called the Perrin conventions uh, uh, early, you know, D and D. We all agree it has some ambiguity about how the turn sequence and how the combat's supposed to run. So Jeff Perrin, the co-author of Chainmail, and in fact the the guy who, according to the the reports, has really started the kernel of the system, wrote a document um, clarifying 
the D&D system under the Perrin conventions. Um, and I read that a couple of years ago. And it is way, way more complicated <laughs> than any D&D I've ever seen run. It's like, wow. it's like, I don't know, 20 oh, phase no. on two pages or something like that. Oh, dear. And so his sensibility, right, was definitely the war gaming type stuff like this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. so I, I at, when the first time I ever heard of the Perrin conventions, I thought, great, going to clear up the D&D combat system and now we're all going to have a nice clean system and it's like way more complicated than anything i would ever oh, want to try to run oh dear maybe maybe if you're a rune quest fan or something like that you want to look at the parent conventions <laughs> <laughs> um so what what else did you want to touch on dan about uh about chainmail as we're getting close we're in the last uh 10 minutes here or so well show. okay so so i mentioned that um i mentioned that for me you know, it clarifies the motivation. It clarif a lot of it clarifies the motivation or the original germ of a lot of ideas about how do elves and dwarves work and how do ghouls work and how do giants and dragons work. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the, just the, probably the top issue that I would pick out is how do fireballs work? I mean, you know, e so even today in 5th edition, we see the 5th edition designers saying, you know, when we were designing the whole spell system of 5th edition, we really wanted Fireball to still be your best choice for the third level spells mm -hmm. because it's been a common touchstone in every single edition from D&D from the beginning. Yep. Well, where, why, why Fireball? Why, why, did, why has Fireball gotten so much mind share? And the answer is that in Chainmail, your wizards had two abilities that they could use every round on an unlimited fashion and there to throw a fireball or a lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. Everything else they were limited with, but fireballs and lightning bolts they could throw every round without limit. How did it work? Use the catapult rules. Right. Or the, wasn't, and, um, but isn't the lightning bolt like the cannon rules? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the fireball just says use the catapult rules and yeah. the lightning bolt just says use the cannon rules. Which of course shoots in a straight line and knocks a whole bunch of people yep. over. Yep. Um, and the, and the and, and a lot of people say fireball is overbalanced, right? Fireball is too powerful. Well, the thing that balances and fireball can kill a whole bunch of people, right? It's got a big radius yep. and yep. actually in chainmail, automatic death. There's yep. no damage. There's no save. <laughs> no, just, just plop it down. Anybody under the circle, they're just dead. Just take them off dead. the board. End <laughs> the story. So what's the balancing factor? And the balancing factor is on the table. Right on the t not theater of the mind on the table with the miniatures, the player had to verbally call the distance without measuring it. Yep, yep. And so the balancing factor was entirely how skilled was the player at estimating the distance. And if you misestimated it, and presumably at a longer range, harder to estimate, then you just miss and mm -hmm. you wouldn't hit your target at all. Mm -hmm. And that same exact language is still copied forward into original D&D and first edition and second edition. It still said technically it still says all the way up into second edition, the, 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 the caster has to call the distance, yeah. um, unlike any other spell. And that kind of frankly doesn't make sense when you're running theater of the mind without miniatures, right. but it does make sense in chainmail. So to me, I look back and go, Oh, that was the, that was the balancing factor. There was supposed to be a balancing factor in it. What can I do to recreate that? And honestly, Paul, I've bungled that in the past. And you know that I have a rule that I've used for a number of years in D and D, and I need to I need to modify that because in retrospect, that was that was not actually a great adjustment. 
You're talking about the, um, the randomly adding a die roll there to, to, to right, fudge right, the, exactly. the landing point. Which and what I is, realized yeah. was that die roll is what happens for catapults at long range. And so that might be something that's halfway reasonable at very, very long distance. But up close, I should have been doing something different. The problem is, in chainmail, catapults can't shoot at short range. Right, right. So the rules only handle stuff at long distance, and it overlooks the short range. Interesting. And me finally noticing that in chainmail is going to allow me to come up with, a, with a, I think, a better house rule for that. Hmm. Wouldn't that be fascinating if there was a minimum range of some spells? Hmm. Are there any? I feel like I don't know. Minimum, like a probably minimum not. range. I don't think so. Probably yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Good yeah, point. only in terms of like you don't want to be caught in your own fireball, right? Like exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yep. Very interesting. So that's one of those shifts, yep. right? Original yep. rule for catapults made sense at long range. You shift and say it can be any range, and all of a sudden you have a little bit of a gap of handling that, <laughs> which I have have only actually noticed myself fairly recently oops <laughs> uh, i think i i think uh it would be a disservice if we didn't talk a little bit in this in this show dan about book of war uh i know probably our viewers know all about it but for those who don't uh dan wrote his own uh set of rules for for mass combat that that uh, coincides with D or that can mesh with D called book of war definitely recommend you check that out where are they going to find that dan uh, it's on oedgames.com. Look for it on oedgames.com, um, along with the the Book of Spells product. Thank you for pointing that out, Paul. And you know, and and probably our viewers also know that um, uh, my partner Isabel and I commonly uh, 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 do a show where we actually play Book of War live Saturday nights usually. So hopefully we'll have another show next Saturday for that. And we have a lot of fun with it. And the interesting thing is, I've been seeing people discover that on social media and not even know about the show. And just yesterday, someone posted on Twitter, I just got uh, Dan's Book of War product and played it for the first time. And we had an awful lot of fun, but I think that we mangled up a whole lot of uh, rules. Um, and my response was, well, every time we run it, we mangle up a whole bunch of rules too. So that's that's yeah. perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. And we try to get better. Grand um, tradition of screwing up the rules. And, that's. Um, yeah, and I can certainly attest uh, that it does um, synergize well with with old school D anD. d We've run multiple old school D anD. d campaigns where we've included it uh, and used it to to resolve large scale combats that the players get uh, entangled in, and it works very well. That was the that was the intent, and you know, part of me wants to love swords and spells, but it doesn't work very well. Part of me really wants to love battle system. And the, the mechanics there are a little bit wonky too. And with Book of War, you, you're back at, you know, the, the, the intent of Chainmail is back. Of you just roll a giant wad of dice and you just count up how many came up five or six or whatever. And you can immediately visually see the results. And there's no paperwork, there's no record keeping like, like battle system or swords and spells needs. Is you get some kills, you take the figures off the table. That's, that's basically it. So we, it finally, you know, that was on my mind for 20 plus years and it's finally, finally scratched the itch. And I got I, I am very grateful for the, the really nice feedback uh, that I get from a lot of people saying that likewise, that it kind of scratched their itch. Now, I, know, and I also got a little out, love from the chat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, John. That's awesome. That's amazing. 
it's kind of frightening. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, you know, uh, now the the next thing that people want to do is, uh, you know, since it's at one to 10 scale, generally, if you do want your hero or wizard to show up, they have to be 10th level. So the little bit of a remaining gap that's that a couple of different people have, tra- have have wanted to address is, well, what happens if I want like kind of a fast paced game like this, but for like a fourth or fifth or sixth level um, character? And a couple of people have suggested a couple of things. You in particular, uh, Paul, uh, drafted uh, a, uh, a set of rules called Odd Encounters. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, it's meant to be a play on OD&D. <laughs> Because it's odd. Right. Um, you know that was a very that the, that set of rules, and I, I realized I never even posted it to my own blog with any fanfare or anything. Cause it was a very self serving thing that I that I that I put together based on Book of War and then just D and D and whatever I could mishmash together. Um, specifically in the situation where I was, the place I was working uh, uh, had a lot of people who were very interested in war games, but just didn't have the time for it. Like, and we tried. We had things where, like, we would try like after work gatherings where we maybe play Warhammer and they just weren't flying. It was too complicated. It was too, you know, it was difficult for newbies to get into and it consumed too much time. And so um, we had a bunch of miniatures and terrain lying around and I, and we wanted some game where we could just kind of casually play. So I was specifically looking for a thing that we could set up in a corner of the office and people could go and take their turns, like like you like like having like a chessboard there where you're not really synchronously playing, where you could just be like, oh, whose turn is it? So and so's turn. Okay, go over and oh. move your guys. And so you could play a game, a war game like thing, over the course of many days or many weeks, and uh, kind of scratch that itch. So that's that's what it was built for. Um, and it's just a little little skirmish game. So I don't know how well it holds up. I don't know. It wasn't like extensively play tested or anything like that so <laughs> <laughs> but it scratches an itch and yeah. um i think it's a very i think it's a very good uh, stab at that i actually do have that on my blog so if you go to my blog delta's D D, um you can look up uh, paul's odd encounters and you know what i have the whole you know core rules to book of war on there as well so if you just search my blog for book of war you're going to see the core rules and you can see what it looks like and whether it would whether it's, it would be something that you'd, you'd like to try. We just take some miniatures and some D6s, basically. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up that, Paul, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I should probably post that to my blog since I never did. Uh, I don't know why I never, never posted about it. It was, it was, it was a very, it was, it was not a thing that I was really making for like wide, wide distribution. It was, uh, I'll plan to put a link yeah. in the, uh, the YouTube archive to this video actually to, uh, uh, but it is on my my blog, Delta's D and D, under great, the great. under the title Odd Encounters. So I'll put a link there. Great, great, yeah, good stuff. Um, all right, Dan. Any final thoughts on Chainmail? Well, you know, I'm glad it got published. I'm glad they took I'm glad they took the risk at the time of sticking some peanut butter in their chocolate uh, to put uh, the idea of fantasy fantasy elements like hobbits and dragons and trolls and ghouls and balrogs and ants and nazgul as they had in the first edition i'll point out is my last stab um and it really was the germ you know that wasn't their initial instinct that that was going to be the product that made them famous but the idea of uh let's kind of break the mold and put some fantasy stuff in it was really what what was the platform for, you know, our fantasy role-playing in our, in our D&D games. So um, 
I like to go and, 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 and see what was on their mind in the earliest in the earliest state. And for me, that clears up some stuff. And I, I love having my copy of Chainmail available. Awesome. I would recommend it. Anybody watching this show, you're probably, you know, you, you are someone that likes or are interested in the history of D&D enough. You should go get Chainmail on Drive-Thru RPG yep. um, and, and see what it looks like. I did place a link to that in the show notes already. So that's in there. Um, if you want to go find the, the PDF of Chainmail, you can still get it. Definitely. Definitely. Excellent. Um, viewers, if you uh, want to see these links, you can just check out the description here in our YouTube video. Um, likewise, uh, leave us some comments. Tell us what you think. What have you used for massive combat in your D&D games? Or have you played Chainmail all on its own and do you think it stands up? Um, yeah. Let us know what you think. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Like, And, and have you played the Chainmail mass combat game? Have you played the, the Chainmail fantasy supplement one-on-one -on -one game? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I kinda, I'd be interested in hearing a mix of which of those things do you uh, do you play with? Do you mostly just use it for the jousting rules? Which we didn't get into. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be another that'll be another episode. Yeah. Um, of course, if you happen to be new to the show, remember that uh, we are on social media like Twitter and Twitch and Facebook and YouTube and GitHub, and we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. So if you could like, follow, subscribe to us on those sites, we'd really appreciate it. We definitely would. And uh, if you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, uh, you can get it from our website at wanderingdms.com or various podcast carriers such as Google Podcast, iTunes, Spotify. If you are using one of those uh, third-party carriers to listen to our show, please take a moment to rate and review us there. Uh, that helps other users of that platform find us and uh, really appreciate it. We definitely do. Uh, look for things coming up uh, this week on the Wandering DMs channel. Hopefully, Paul will have a show on Thursday for 10 Dead Rats. Hopefully, I will have a show Saturday <laughs> night for Book of War. We will do our best. We'll try our best. Um, and then, of course, as we mentioned next week, what a, what a, what a great segue this is. We did, not, we did not plan this at all. But again, uh, next week, April 18th, we will have Mr. Tim Cask on. And of course, uh, Tim was the original editor of the Dragon Magazine. He was the editor of all the original D&D supplements save Greyhawk. So he is, I believe he's the only person on earth that uh, attempted to both wrangle uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson's writing into shape at different points. So personally, I am really looking forward to, um, and if you want a little preview, uh, Tim is still active, does uh, games at conventions, last I heard, has uh, his, his curmudgeon in the cellar videos on YouTube you can look up. And I'm really looking forward to asking Tim about his experiences uh, editing uh, early D&D stuff next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we both are. Yeah, should be a good time. And of course, yeah. And of course, uh, and Paul knows him pretty well, frankly. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get some extra insights that way. Um, <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, big shout out to our patrons who support us in uh, our show and getting great guests like Janelle J. Quays last week and Tim Cast next week. Um, if you're in a place where you could possibly join our patrons, uh, please do go to patreon.com slash wandering dams and you'll see our different tier levels that include offers like uh, access to a private discord server where we have lots of conversations going on all the time and uh, discounts on merch and uh, 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 there's a there's a post conversation that happens live after the show on on discord and uh, oh, so many 
<laughs> right, and polls and surveys on what we ought to have yep. on upcoming shows and blogs. Yep. Right. Yep. Man, and access to better. certain patron-exclusive videos, such as right. your yes. breakfast briefings with a uh, right. invited guest, <laughs> Isabel Garbani. <laughs> right, right. Paul, we got to offer less stuff. We're just <laughs> offering too much stuff on the patronage. I mean, I don't, I don't regret that, but it's just like, oh, so many things. Um, and, and we're adding there. more things all the time. Yeah, I'm sure we will be over there very soon uh, on the Discord to have our regular post-show chat where I'm sure we'll be discussing all manner of things around Chainmail. And uh, I won't be surprised if we talk a little bit about Fireballs. So uh, come come join us. Come join us after the show and uh, have a little chat. It's, it's really fun. It's really nice, actually. We're having more people in that conversation every week. And actually, it's really it's really, it's becoming many of our favorite, favorite part of the week, actually. So uh, Paul and I will go and do that uh, momentarily. And of course, don't forget that we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time next week with Mr. Tim Cask. So we do hope that you'll come back and join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.